Welcome to Mind Things, a podcast about how psychedelics will change your brain and change the world. My name is Trey, and I'm going to be talking to people in the psychedelic space. Entrepreneurs, writers, investors, researchers, and people who have had profound experiences using these substances. My guest today is Manesh Gurn. Manesh is currently a PhD student in neuroscience at McGill University and has been lead or co-author on over a dozen scientific publications and book chapters on topics including psychedelics, meditation, daydreaming, and the default mode network. He's currently conducting research on the brain mechanisms underlying LSD, psilocybin, and DMT in collaboration with Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and others from the Imperial College London Center for Psychedelic Research. In his free time, he also runs a YouTube channel called The Psychedelic Scientist, where he discusses the latest findings in psychedelic science in an easy-to-understand but non-superficial form. This is actually how I came across Manesh. I stumbled into his YouTube channel while looking for information on psychedelics and got super excited because I'd been searching for just really easy-to-understand explanations of how psychedelics work in the brain, the actual science behind them, and Manesh just does a really great job of that. And so I sort of went down the rabbit hole, watched a bunch of his videos, started following him on Twitter, and uh, reached out to him here a few weeks ago, and he agreed to be on the podcast. Super excited for this episode. We talked about how psychedelics work in the brain, a lot of his research into the default mode network. We talked about things like free will and how learning can potentially be enhanced by psychedelic use. Manesh is just a super interesting guy and has a lot of great things to say. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get to it now. Manesh, hello and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So tell us about the path to becoming the psychedelic scientist. It has its first beginnings when I was maybe 16, uh, 17, 16. I got introduced to Zen Buddhism. So this is an interesting route into there. I got introduced to kind of Eastern spirituality and meditation through this random teacher at my high school and I started reading about this stuff. And at the time I was going through a rough period of high school. High school can be tough on people. I'm getting bullied a little bit and getting down on myself and read this book about how you can meditate and purify your mind and attain equanimity and enlightenment. And I was like, oh, if these people don't know about this, I know what's really important. And I kind of got really into it and you know, started meditating and all these things. And then eventually I started reading like my reading brought me to psychedelics and I was like, oh, here's this drug that we've been told, you know, makes us go crazy or whatever. And people speak of it in the same uh, sentence as things like heroin, which is just insane. And anyway, I read these books, which were, uh, I think one of the first ones that really impacted me was getting interest, introduced to some Stan Groff's work, who's a pioneering LSD psychiatrist. And at the time, I, you know, I didn't have the background at that age to really understand fully everything, but I got the gist of it that I can that he seemed to be suggesting that psychedelics can like catalyze these transformative experiences where people get insight into themselves and go deep into their mind and uh, process things like emotions and past memories and uh, radically alter how they perceive the world. And I was like, this is fascinating. I re- people are still stigmatizing these things and denying their potential, but it seems there's something there. And then eventually, and I was very interested in it by that. I originally wanted to go into philosophy or a philosophy and psychology double major. So that's what I want to do. I want to study the mind, but psychology wasn't doing it for me. I really like philosophy. And so I was just trying to merge the two. 
And then eventually I got into, I became a research assistant in a lab at uh, UBC, University of British Columbia. And this lab was doing uh, brain imaging research and I guess like psychology, it was in the psychology department uh, on things like mind wandering, daydreaming and meditation. And, you know, these airy abstract things, but they were doing it, you know, the lab was studying it in like a rigorous way. And I was like, here's things I'm interested in. I could see potential movement towards psychedelics in the future through that. So then I got really into the brain imaging side. I was like, this is also more objective. It's grounded. We're actually looking at brain activity here and not these abstract psychological measures. And, and yeah, so eventually, long story short, I got really into that research, ended up actually publishing a couple of papers related to psychedelics with that researcher by the time I was finished. And now I'm in grad school. I'm a second year PhD student and um, doing some of my research on what's called the default mode network, which is a network in the brain that's related to some of our abstract aspects of our thinking. And then I also, um, a couple of years back, I wrote a proposal for a research project and sent it to some of the psychedelic researchers in London, people like Robin Carhart Harris on ways to analyze their data that they haven't done. And they're on board with it. And so now I have collaborations with them and I'm working with them on a couple of projects with data, psychedelic related brain data. Very cool. 10 different things I can dive into there. Maybe let's, let's start with how, have you had psychedelic experiences yourself? I have. Yes. It's interesting to comment on that because I know for, I've gone back in my head about back and forth in my head about this, because you hear some researchers saying, if you're a researcher and you admit you did psychedelics, you're harming your credibility because it makes you seem unbiased and makes you seem like somebody who's out there to prove the psychedelic gospel because they experienced mm. it and they know it's this X, mm -hmm. Y, Z. But at the same time, what I would argue, and I know other people would, people would argue, is that if you don't have some kind of first-person experience, you can never understand what's going on with these drugs. You can have all the quantitative statistics and these abstract measures, but like you really, it's just words and numbers if you haven't had the experience. And furthermore, I think having the experience helps you create new hypotheses to test and really understand what's going on. So yeah, I just wanted to say that because a lot of people, a lot of researchers decline to answer that question. Interesting. But, yeah, um, I, I, I wouldn't have expected that. It makes logical sense. But yeah, I would presume exactly what you said, which is it's hard to comment on it in a meaningful way unless you have experienced it. Do you recall your first experience or any details you're, you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, yeah. So my first experience was at a beach. I was probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. Some magic mushrooms, some psilocybin containing mushrooms. And that experience really allowed myself allowed me to step back from my usual way of perceiving the world. And I saw myself from a third person perspective. So I saw my, how I was behaving and how I was thinking and how the other people around me were behaving as well. But like from the perspective of, it's going to sound pretty funny. And this is really funny, the 17 year old thinking these things. But I was like, I just felt like we're a bunch of primates. So a bunch of, essentially monkeys, advanced monkeys, acting in these, in, in these behaviors, which are just a result of a particular evolutionary heritage and like our own behavioral tendencies we have with associated with coming from that lineage. And, and I just like, that was fascinating to see as if like I'm another species seeing humans, mm -hmm. including myself. And anyway, so in the end, this experience made me like much more reflective on how relative our perception of the world is. And you know, how like, we can perceive the world in radically different ways. And we lived our, we live a lot of our lives in this myopic kind of tunnel vision. And it made me really reflect on the potential of the mind and what does it mean to have a more clear experience of reality? What does that even mean? And how can these drugs teach us about 
the kind of fundamental way we frame our, our reality, you know? And, and have you had, presumably you've had other experiences since then, are you learning and taking away different things with each experience? Or is it all sort of like continuing to solidify maybe some of those takeaways that you had the very first time? Yeah, it's been very different, you know, since then. But I think these days I'm more so, I'm very interested in going beyond my own personal case and seeing in general, what are people experiencing? Because I think you can only go so far based on my own anecdotal kind of experiences. Now, I mean, there's a lot of survey studies being done these days by John Hopkins in London and all sorts of places on usually collecting, you know, hundreds or thousands of people asking a bunch of questions about their experiences. And it's really interesting to see what comes out because the Sadog experience itself, it's like hugely variable. The same person will never have the same experience twice. And if two people in the same room take us, take some mushrooms, they're going to have radically different experiences. So then it's how can we collect enough data that we can abstract and, and see the, the consistencies? What is the structure that's present across multiple people? And also an interesting question for me is what's the progression over multiple trips? Is there one? Mm -hmm. Is there some kind of inherent teleology to the psychedelic experience, which is trying to take you somewhere as you heal more and integrate more and access deeper states. And obviously people have varying opinions on that, but I think that's what I'm more interested in these days. It's like the, like what's really going on at a larger level. So as a neuroscientist, what do you, what's your take on the companies that are developing like very tailored versions of psychedelics versus just, just having the psychedelics in general. And a lot of what you said validates the point about how important set and setting is and someone's like personal context, you mean the exact same drug, exact same dose to, to two different people, there's a different experience. So is there even a need or a value in taking it a step further and having particular synthesized versions of the drugs? Yeah, I think it really depends on what their goals are. And as far as I know, the drugs that they're trying to develop are things like one company's trying to develop like psychedelic drugs without the trip which I think is bizarre and that's a whole other thing. <laughs> uh, the, the, acute ex the experiences you go through and for example, having memories of when, you know, of some traumatic event when you were a kid, have that come up and have you acknowledging it in this new way and coming to terms with it. It's, can you do that without having that experience? And I think, and do you want to, I think, because I think it's more personally meaningful and mm -hmm. to, to see what's happening and able to participate in that processing of yourself. I'm still more of a purist though. I think these drugs are, have this extreme potential and perhaps there are certain things that can be done to reduce physiological things like feeling nauseous or other like unwanted side effects. But I think the psychedelic experience in general, as you can elicit through psilocybin or, or, or LSD, we're done with a properly controlled context and all the rest is extremely, there's a lot of potential there. And it's more so, I think well, I'm more concerned about or interested in how to potentiate the experience and guide it in the optimal way through the context, through even like before the experience, during and after the whole thing. And how can we best embed it in a context that facilitates what we want to facilitate. So I think I'm more interested in finding that rather than trying to tinker with the drug and somehow. Yeah, the, the, I guess the, the one aspect of it that seems somewhat interesting to me as just a, a casual observer is the ability to just reduce the duration and how that can potentially allow for more therapeutic uses, given that psilocybin, you know, can last six to eight hours and LSD 10 or 12 hours, just reducing that time period. That seems somewhat interesting to me in terms of all, all the other things you mentioned about guiding the experience properly. So in your research, are you, are you actually, or a part of a team that is like administering drugs and then actually 
scanning someone's brain during the experience. What is that experience for patients that you're putting through the process? Yeah, yeah. so I haven't done that myself, not yet. So I've been using already collected data, but I know a mm-hmm. bunch of research labs are doing this. So I can't comment on the details there. I just know there's a very in-depth and thorough screening beforehand. They're really trying to make the experience as comfortable as possible. There's some psychiatrists uh, on deck and they're very well, everything is done to ensure they have as little anxiety as possible. They feel comfortable. They can get out of the scanner whenever they want. They know what they're getting yourself into, et cetera. But I can't comment on the details there because I haven't done that yet. But something else I want to say, though, about the yeah. shorting the trip thing, because I think yeah. it's interesting. Is One thing to take into account is that if you have a difficult experience come up during a psychedelic trip, and we know this from the work of Sangroff and tons of people, that the best way to help them resolve that is to see it through, is to come to that conclusion. And if we're like creating these drugs, which give a two-hour trip, there's going to be mm. a lot of unprocessed stuff at the end of it that can lead to more harm than good. You might come out of it more anxious because it's like you brought it up, but you haven't worked through it. So in some sense, like the, the, the full duration of the psilocybin or even LSD might be needed for some people to really process what comes up. So. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Psychedelics in general have this primed state during and even after where there's, you hear the term neuroplasticity a lot, right? Like creating new pathways in the brain. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm particularly interested to know if someone's ability to learn is heightened during that stage. If I wanted to learn a new language, for example, is there some way of combining that with psychedelics and being in this prime state where I'm more likely to learn and maybe retain certain new knowledge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And there is stuff in rats showing that certain types of memory are enhanced after psychedelic, after giving them things like DMT, for example. Because there is research showing that psychedelics can boost neuroplasticity. And what that basically means is it gives your brain cells more to work with in terms of forming new connections between each other and also reorganizing old ones. So psychedelics don't create necessarily by their own mechanism, create new pathways. They just create the conditions or the resources where new ones can be made based on your experience and based on what you try to integrate afterwards. In terms of learning, more research is definitely needed, and it's a really interesting topic of how psychedelics can enhance learning. But things do suggest you're in this more flexible state in terms of your brain, and you might be more able to learn in particular ways. But there are other ways which you're not going to be able to, which will be an impaired in, right? So it's, it's really a matter of we need more controlled studies, testing specific paradigms and different types of learning to see what areas are impaired and what areas might be facilitated. But at the same time, you give somebody some psilocybin, sure, you're more neuroplastic, perhaps, but, uh, but you're going to be less likely to be fully engaged in some little task that you're doing. Like you might be, you might have the intention to learn this language, but when you're looking at it, paper starts dissolving in itself and you're losing your sense of self. It's like, what do you do, right? Then it's a matter of finding the optimal dosage and then find the optimal dosage that, dosage that induces neuroplasticity or what makes it manageable for you to do with something like that. And that's where microdosing comes in, which is taking a really small amount and which is not affecting your experience necessarily, which might boost learning through neuroplasticity. But again, like all this research is in its very early stages, so we need more kind of really say anything. But in a, in a macro dose, what is the duration that there is actually neuroplasticity? Is it just during the experience or does it carry over for, I don't know, more hours or, or a few days even? Yeah, it's a good question. I can't give a, I don't know for sure. And I'm not sure it ha- if it has been definitively shown, like how long that lasts, but 
usually it's assumed it's not like it's only while you're under the effects there's people report an afterglow after your experience of a day or so where there might be lingering effects in that way it's just the question of let's say you take a psychedelic and it boosts all these what we call neuroplastic markers so aspects of brain signaling that relate to neuroplasticity that stuff will be remain there and it just depends on whether you used or not or how you use it or not so i think it's not like you'll take the drug and then it's over and you're like oh i lost all my neuroplasticity it's like the things it brought up are still there but just mm -hmm. for a temporary time and you can use them how you want so when it comes to microdosing microdosing is sub perceptual so you don't feel any sort of psychedelic or disassociative effect do you have any experience with microdosing? And it's one of these things, it's more like a vitamin. Like, how do you really know if it's working or not? Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because obviously there's a lot of anecdotal reports, people who swear by it. It's like the yeah. whole Silicon Valley thing. But the research is very, like, it, it goes both ways. Like, a lot of it is showing that it might all be placebo or there's studies that do find changes. But yeah, interesting study where they ask the people, like, how do you think this affected your thinking, your behavior, your perception? In cognition and then they gave them like standardized tasks which actually measure these things and then what they thought they improved in was completely different than what they actually did improve in so it seems one they might be doing less things we might expect and then two the things that they're helping us with are not necessarily what we think they're helping us with so it's like a messy thing with the research right now but again it's still very early there's just like surprisingly little work on microdosing and, and psychedelics in general really so it's going to be another few years we can really say anything definitive. My view is that we still need obviously these large, larger placebo controlled uh, studies where you're comparing it to placebo directly. And also we need to figure out what the best tasks or behavioral paradigms are needed to actually tap into what, what it might be doing. Because if you ask somebody who microdoses a lot, they might say stuff like, oh, I just, my day was just a bit better. I felt a bit more present. I was able to get stuff done and not procrastinate. But then when you give them this like attention task in the moment, it's, is that really tapping into what they describe? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What they describe, what they seem to be describing is more subtle uh, shifts in their attention and in their experience that might not be captured by specific control tasks that they're doing. So I think new tasks and approaches need to be devised too before we just throw it out and say, oh, it doesn't work because it doesn't affect these things. So at the very least, you can have a placebo and do a controlled test with microdosing how do people even do that with macrodoses? It's obvious whether or not you have taken the placebo or the psychedelic. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think one, yeah, like as soon as you, you'll know within a little, like pretty fast, right? But I think what's interesting is using, this has its own complications, but like an active placebo, like giving them a little bit of, let's say something similar to Adderall. Mm -hmm. They feel a, a significant shift in their experience, but especially if they haven't taken a psychedelic before. Then they can be like, oh, I'm coming up, it's coming on, it's coming on. And then they might just think they got a small dose of psilocybin or something. But a lot of studies so far don't really do that. They use, they just inject salt water or, or like if it's an intravenous or they give them salt water or some sugar pill type thing. And then it's very obvious very fast. So it's very hard to placebo control psychedelics. And yeah, it's a whole messy thing with psychedelics because your expectations have a huge role in your experience that's mm -hmm. set, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like psychedelics in some sense are almost placebo enhancers because they enhance what's already gone, going on for you. So there's it, a lot of yeah, issues around applying standard pharmacological protocols to psychedelics. So it just doesn't work. So. so in terms of your own research, you're a few years into a PhD, you have three or four more years. What, what do the next few years hold for you? Do you stick to one specific thing over the next several years or there's a couple of different 
areas that you'll get to explore. Yeah. In the end, grad school, what, I'm lear- what I've learned is that grad school is what you make it in the research world. And I'm somebody who just wants to do a million things. So I have many different research projects and things I want to do outside of my dissertation work. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm doing this cool work, interesting work on the default mode network and how it's related to how it influences our day-to-day life is what I'm interested in, in processes related to that. And in the psychedelic world, I'm playing, you know, as I mentioned, I have data on LSD, psilocybin, DMT of people on that and their brain data. And I'm trying to analyze in different ways to try to see what is consistent across these drugs. What can we plausibly infer as something related to the psychedelic experience? And I'm also increasingly interested in trying to develop new tasks or behavioral paradigms to test specific things about the psychedelic experience. It's like you can say, oh, this is your drug on LSD, but this is, this is how LSD alters this specific process, which is related to X, Y, and Z. And I think that's very informative too. And so I'm trying to pivot towards how can we actually constrain and focus and learn new things about psychedelics and how they affect the brain. Uh, What's an example of that, like a specific behavioral task that you would carve out and look at? Yeah, yeah. So it could be something like, let's think of memory. So we want to see how does the psych, do psychedelics help us retrieve distant memories? And then, so we'll have them with placebo maybe, and then psychedelics and put them through a task, which primes them on particular uh, events that were likely to happen when they were a kid. Um, and like, for example, perhaps we can have subjects give inf- like photos from their past to the researcher. And then when they're in the state versus not like, how much did you remember this memory vividly? How much emotion was associated with it? What connections came up with this? Stuff like this. And then you and you can put them in the brain scanner while you're doing this. So it's like, how are the connectivity or activations around memory regions different? How did that relate to you retrieving these memories and the emotions associated with it? Something like that. It's more, that's, I think that's more interesting and informative perhaps than just saying, just putting them in there and doing nothing, right? What, are there any sort of hypotheses that you have regarding any of these things that you, you haven't yet been able to test, but you're really intrigued to test out? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to experimentally show what I was saying. This do psychedelics. Can we show that psychedelics allow us easier access to autobiographical memories? So are we able to more easily tap into our storehouse of past experiences? Even those memories, which we've long forgotten because perhaps they're emotionally charged and we push them away, we repress them. Are people better able to bring those up and vividly experience them, experience them without getting overwhelmed in the psychedelic experience? I think that'd be really cool. And then obviously there's questions related to creativity. We can give them the creativity tasks because there really haven't, there haven't been any study, like modern study where they gave people psychedelics, like a normal, like a macro dose or even like a medium dose that's not micro Mm -hmm. and give them standardized creativity tasks to see how that affects them. That hasn't been done either. So really just like a whole variety of things yeah. that can be done because this stuff is so early. So what, what inspired you to start the Psychedelic Scientists, this YouTube series that, mm. that you've created? Yeah, so for me, obviously psychedelics are like a passion of mine. I'm very fascinated with them. There's so much potential there. And I talk about it with a lot of people. It always ends up, like I'm the psychedelic guy amongst all my friends. They always <laughs> prefer people to me or talk to me about these things. And I wanted a platform to share the research and like why I'm so interested in these things to a broader audience, to my friends and family and beyond. And also I just wanted, I, I felt, as you said, it, the, on, the online world was missing somebody who is grounded, who, who has read the papers, knows the actual stuff, 
but then is conveying it in a way that people can understand who do have a specialist background. So I really wanted to fill that niche and fill that gap and kind of provide easy to understand videos, which weren't like super sensationalistic or simplified, like some of the news media stuff. Yes. Yeah, so basically those two things and, and it's been great so far. I've, it's been really rewarding. I've met a lot of people, made a lot of connections, a lot of people reaching out to me, even in the business world, different companies and things. And yeah, and I plan to continue with it. I really, I'm going to start, a, I'm planning to start a little podcast with that too, to interview top researchers and a lot of them I know. So it'd be like, it'd be great to do that. And yeah, just providing more value and expanding the whole psychedelic education thing. Basically. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mentioned before we, we started recording how I've been reading for several years now and listening to podcasts and subscribing to newsletters. And for the most part, a lot of what I've seen out there is either too academic or just not really speaking the language that, that resonates with me. And I think I stumbled across the psychedelic scientist a, a few months ago and it was like, finally, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Just really clear, easy to understand explanations of various topics as it relates to psychedelics. You, you also have a really good plant setup in a lot of your videos, which I experience. What are some examples of videos that you've made like topic wise and, and maybe some others that you're planning on making in the near future? My most recent video was like more of a critical one. I was, uh, I was critiquing a lot, like two of the main claims that people make around the default mode network in psychedelic drugs. I was hoping to stir some more response from that. And it's kind of critique, like the very like things that you see all over the internet, basically. And in previous videos before that, it was just like, how do measure mushrooms work in the brain? And also I did a couple of videos on ego death or ego dissolution and what that might actually mean and what the research tells us so far. And moving forward, I want to do, there's a couple like unified theories of psychedelics out there of how they work in the brain and how that relates to experience. So by Robin Gallhart Harris, there's the entropic brain theory and also his relaxed beliefs under psychedelics model. And then there's other people like in Zurich, Franz Wallenweider and others really emphasizing the thalamus, which is this brain region that kind of, you can say connects to the cortex, which is a more advanced part of our brain and really modulates and controls a lot of the activity that's going on up there. But they're saying that there's something related to how that affects the brain and that's how psychedelics work. And basically, yeah, diving into these different theories of how they work is what I'm planning to do next. But then after that, just any just small topics that come up, like I'm going to do a video on neuroplasticity, video on microdosing, et cetera. Are there any common misperceptions as it pertains to psychedelics? Or maybe some that maybe you had that you've since changed your mind on after a few years of research. I think progressively I've been getting more modest in my perception of them and, and recognizing that, that, for example, one thing was like, oh, if you take, if you give bad people, quote unquote, psychedelics will make them better people, hmm. um, more empathic, more connected to nature. There was this stuff around maybe you could change people's political views to be more liberal and progressive or something. But like the data, like you know, there was actually a critique by some researchers at John Hopkins University of that saying that the data doesn't really support that in a strong way. And that basically emphasizing, which I totally agree with, that psychedelics are inherently value neutral. They basically, whether they make you a better person or a worse person is based on set and setting. And there are reports of people of KKK and far right people taking psychedelics in their ceremonies or whatever they do, whatever it is they do to basically deepen their commitment to their own ideology. So it's, we can't see psychedelics as this panacea that's going to change people and make them better unequivocally. It's if we do it in a particular context with the person having particular intent intentions, 
with a particular social support structure and social cultural embedding, then, you know, they can have a positive effect, but they don't, they're not going to do that for you. So this is something I'm increasingly recognizing on how important it is, again, is to control these other factors that influence the experience. As a neuroscientist and someone who's interested in philosophy, do you believe in free will? <laughs> I, no, I think I'm, I'm more towards the no side, right? Because one way to, first of all, it really depends on what you mean by free will. We can just go down the route of semantics around that. But yeah. um, if, if it means that your brain can be in the current state it's in and the world can be in the current state it's in, and you have a choice whether you want to do X or Y, then I would say no, because I would say, where would that choice be coming from? Because if it's not coming from your brain, it's not coming from your past memories and your conditioning and your genetics and everything, where is it coming from? And if it's not coming from a particular place, then it's random. And then I think it's different to say things are undetermined than saying that they are, there's some agent choosing. So it could be that there's some kind of randomness and there's an inherent, you could say stochasticity, like there's a uncertainty what's going to happen next. But that, that doesn't say that there's a, you have the capability of choosing. So I, I struggle with that. I, I, don't, I, I can't see how it would fit in. But of course, we have to live as if it's true. But yeah. <laughs> What's your best explanation of what a thought is or how a thought arises? Mm. There are a lot of ways to answer that. One way to frame it is a kind of a way of your mind or brain for uh, kind of somehow predicting what you would need in this next moment to best uh, move ahead in, in, in your life towards your goals, towards survival. So it's like shooting this thing up out of your own will. Obviously, we don't choose what thoughts come up during our day unless we're focused in thinking. Generally, spontaneously, they emerge. It's like your brain's trying to provide you with some best guess of what is um, relevant for your biological system at that moment in time. So it's, and we experience it mostly through language, but I would say it's preverbal. So it's some kind of thing that emerges, then we give it a linguistic kind of uh, framing because then, so then we're able to understand it and perceive it. Otherwise, you could say before language, we were still thinking, but it just wasn't, we weren't aware that we we're thinking because we didn't have a language to frame it in, you know what I mean? But I think it's a way of your brain sending out what it seems is potentially useful information to help guide your behavior. So let's take a simple example of a fork in the road. Yeah. And you're choosing one or the other. What's happening there? Am I sort of subconsciously factoring in some historical context for one path looks darker versus lighter or rockier versus smoother, like things like that. Is that what's happening? Even though I may feel like I have a free choice in that moment. Yeah. I think based on your past experiences and factors such as how much of a risk taker are you, mm -hmm. have you had a traumatic experience by going down that dark road before? So your past experience taken into account your cultural culture, have you been taught that it's like that's safe, that's normal. Have you lived in that kind of environment your entire life? Or have you been in a nice little palace and you never gone out into the uh -huh. world before, right? Yep. There's so many factors. And like, how can you say you're making that decision? Because your upbringing, your experiences, your tendencies, your personality, those are going to determine what you're going to do. And even if you decide, oh, like everything's telling me to go there, but I'm going to go here. But then you're making that decision based on something as well. So right. there's no way out, it seems. So it's a, yeah, it's a never ending philosophical sort of decision tree of how you arrive somewhere. Yeah, um, totally. What do you make of like Neuralink and, and some of these brain computer interactive devices that 
will probably in inevitably exist. Yeah, it's interesting. Like a lot of, if you go on academic Twitter with the neuroscientists, a lot of them make fun of Elon Musk as, as being naive, as not being close to what research is actually at. And he's way out there in, in the stratosphere talking about things, which is what he does. And he seems to achieve things often. I'd say it's, I mean, in principle, it's possible. I think we're a long way away from understanding brain activity enough to manipulate it in the way he's saying. Sure, we can manipulate stuff like having artificial, like neural prosthetics, like having a leg you could control through some interface, like mm -hmm. an artificial leg. So that stuff makes sense because the areas related to our motor commands and our movement are arguably much more simple than the ones related to our abstract thinking and our memory. And there's a lot of things we don't know. So like in terms of uploading our memories to some thing or downloading memories or stuff like this. I think it's still relatively science fictiony and it's like very distant. But yeah, as you said, if humanity doesn't destroy itself in the next hundred years, then I'm sure these things will emerge, <laughs> right? And, so, and then there's so many issues coming up with that and as well as stuff like CRISPR and designing babies and just yep. a whole mess of things that might be possible in the near future. So it, even theoretically, can Neuralink or something like that recreate or create a psychedelic experience? Can that be done through electrical signals only or does there need to be a chemical component? I think in principle, yeah, it, it, it potentially be possible electrically. But I think it's much easier to use the receptors because at the end of the day, you're activating these receptors to create a particular electric effect in the brain, let's say. Mm -hmm. So you are altering electrical interactions, but through the medium of altering the balance, uh, this, this neurotransmitter uh, receptor. And so you can say there's an inherent, like the patterning of this transmitter, of this receptor, has an inherent kind of information to it because activating it leads to a certain specific types of effects and to recreate those certain effects without using this receptor is this difficult you see what i mean because mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. a particular pattern in these receptors that make them uniquely poised to induce these states so it's you're ignoring some really useful thing if you're going to try and do it without them sure yeah, that makes sense so i know you got to jump here in a minute i guess i just want to ask now that you're several years into your research now and you've been interested in the topic for probably almost a decade at this point how have your sort of family and friends perception of you and what you're doing changed over this time period yeah i never had much resistance like my yeah. family is super easygoing i never felt constrained by them they don't probably don't quite understand what i do but they they know i'm not up to something bad and a lot of my friends are very open-minded people too and i talk about this stuff now for years and i think now that I've published research, I'm making these videos, I'm like doing well in my life. It's not like I'm living in some weird setting and talking about <laughs> drugs. And so I feel like I've, I've developed a certain amount of credibility amongst my family and friends now, which was already there for the past few years. But I think now definitely I openly talk about this stuff with anybody and get very little to no negative reactions. And if I do get a negative reaction, I'm excited because that's somebody I can share. I can tap into, oh, like, where is this coming from? What do you... What's uh -huh. going on there? I think it's just interesting. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm excited to see the future videos that you have coming out. Where can, where can people find the psychedelic scientist and some of the research that you've done? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So if you just search the psychedelic scientist on YouTube, you'll be able to find my channel. I'm also more and more active on Instagram and I actually have some videos that I upload on Instagram that I haven't on YouTube yet. So 
just search the psychedelic scientist on Instagram. If you want to follow me personally on Twitter, I am at mgurnero. So M-G-I-R-N-E-U-R-O. I also tweet there, like in a personal capacity. And yeah, was there another question in there? But I think that was it. Yeah, where where people okay. can learn more about you and and maybe research that you've published. Yeah, so the best place to look into that is on what's called ResearchGate, basically LinkedIn, but for researchers. Mm. <clears throat> if you just search my name, so Manesh Gurn ResearchGate. If you just Google ResearchGate Manesh Gurn, you'll find it, and it's, you'll see all my publications on there. Most of them available to download without going through some kind of library server. And you can also always just DM me, like message me on Twitter or Instagram, asking if you want to see one of my papers and I'll send you a copy. So awesome. Great. Well, this has been super fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, I had lots of fun. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode or know of anyone who might benefit from hearing it, please subscribe and share. You can also sign up for the Mind Things newsletter at mindthings.co and find us on Twitter at MindThingsCo. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode very soon.